This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Yoni. Do I sound sort of a bit demob-happy? <laughs> I'm concerned I might sound <laughs> as if you can hear the suitcases being packed, the sun cream being brought out of the cupboard. Um, it, we, I actually, truthfully, I'm not at that point yet. It's another couple of weeks yet or 10 days or something. But mm-hmm. the holiday season is looming. And I don't mean the Chagim here. I mean actual <laughs> vacation holiday. We and mean so, that one of us decided to take the month of August off. Yeah, I've imposed my very continental, almost European-style holiday uh, traditions and attitudes on you because you are so imbued with the Protestant work ethic that you would continue happily <laughs> all through August in Stakhanovite fashion. This is true. <laughs> But I have insisted that we act like the French and take all of August off. Yeah. And, and so I've you know, imposed is- it on you, Yonit, and I'm afraid on our listeners. First of all, I am wondering how you will survive without my 20 text messages a day bugging you. We must talk about the podcast. And how will I survive without your 20 messages of I'm busy right now writing my <laughs> book, play, column, libretto, encyclopedia. <laughs> I'll get back to you. Um, I don't know. I just don't know. Maybe we'll just have to continue that correspondence at least so we can survive the month of August. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to question the premise of your question there because something tells me that the texts may just keep coming. And it's quite true that I would be um, bereft without them. So I'm glad uh, that we'll continue that. But I must stress to our listeners, August will not be an unholy free zone because we will have a weekly delight and treat served up for you at the usual time and in the usual place wherever you get your podcasts. You t- say, Yoni, what we've got in mind. We're going to bring in uh, the conversations, some of the conversations that we loved in a new gift wrapping. And we should also say that if something uh, dramatic happens, we will be back. So we hope summer will be calm. But if not, uh, we will, of course, uh, be here uh, for you. It's funny, you talked about a French-style vacation. And somehow it made me think today of the fact that, uh, you know, it, less than 100 years ago, there was no paid vacation. In anywhere, actually, France, of course, 1936, and then you guys came, and then, of course, Israel did it in 1951. So we, the, the world is changing very rapidly, but some things are pretty fairly recently uh, changing. I don't know why I'm in this philosophical mood. Maybe because no, you're leaving for August. I like that, so but I, I have to say that's a new fact for me. That Israel didn't have paid vacation until 1951. Well, we and were only established in 1948. I know. Then, so I'm yeah. Like, no, luckily, okay, I know yeah. that date. Um, <laughs> and that's familiar to me. But the three-year interlude is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it goes to yeah. that thing that it really was like a country on a kind of war footing for those first three years. Mm-hmm. It didn't let its hair down at all till then. Um, we should talk about the big story in the news, which is one of those rare stories that absolutely is a big story for Israel and certainly a big story for the Jewish world simultaneously. And that is the Russian government's decision to close down the operations of the Jewish agency in its territory, as it's framed as retaliation for Israel's support for Ukraine. We're going to get into a whole discussion, including with our guest later on, about the extent to which Israel really did support or has supported Ukraine. But this is a big 
move. Um, the Jewish Agency, we should explain, it's a big, you know, officially non, it's a sort of quasi-governmental so organization. A semi-government organization. Right? Yeah, it predates the creation of the State of Israel, which I'm helpfully told by my co-host happened in 1948. Um, so those years. I thought you might Hebrew use school, that fact. Um, that's my fun fact. Um, it predates the creation of the State of Israel. It was almost a kind of government in waiting for Israel in the uh, period, in the pre-state period. But instead of just disappearing when Israel was created, it has continued as this um, agency doing the work of support for Jews, especially the Jews who are determined to make Aliyah journey to Israel. Uh, it is the agency which brings Jews around the world who are in need or who want to make the move to Israel, but also sponsors and promotes Jewish life in all kinds of places. Um, and it's been shut down by Vladimir Putin, which is a big moment. Yeah, I mean, he's threatening to uh, shut it down. And the first hearing, of course, it, it sounds like a legal issue, right? Uh, the first hearing was uh, today, the Justice Ministry's case against the Jewish agency. Their main claim is the uh, issue of that it's violating the privacy laws in the way that, that it is detailing uh, the info on information of uh, Jewish potential uh, immigrants to Israel. So the hearing ended today with the next hearing scheduled for August 19th. That gives you an indication that someone is not in a hurry to solve this exactly, and the Russians wouldn't uh, settle for any sort of out-of-court mediation. Now, what is going on here, Jonathan? As we said, you know, at the beginning, Israel thought it was a merely legal issue. Uh, we were uh, poised to send legal experts, and they were stuck here in the country for five days without getting a visa, thus the penny beginning to drop in Israel that maybe it's not necessarily or just a legal uh, issue. Adding upon that, the fact that Putin has been acting against all kinds of organizations and Western organizations, but now against the Jewish agency quite swiftly. So that's another indication that something is going uh, on here. And how Israel, how is Israel reading this message? What is Putin actually trying to tell Israelis? I think there are three things uh, going on here. Firstly, and probably most importantly, since the Ukrainian, uh, the invasion of Ukraine began, 20,000 Russian Jews uh, left Russia and immigrated to Israel. This is an uptick, uh, the highest number for 30 years. And Putin doesn't uh, like this. This is important because if this is truly what is bothering him, then whatever he, the actions he can take are not only limited to threatening or closing down the offices of, of the Jewish agency. This is what Israel is very worried about. Another thing, he doesn't mind ruffling Lapid's feathers. Uh, we should uh, remind our audience that uh, uh, Lapid and Bennett, when they were in government together, kind of played this I'm not going to say bad cop, good cop, but rather uh, maybe uh, bad cop, neutral cop, right? Uh, Bennett was very careful not to reprimand or not to castigate Russia. And Lapid did talk about Russia's invasion being uh, illegitimate and did accuse uh, Russia of, of committing war crimes. So now when uh, Putin is looking at Lapid being the prime minister and, of course, the fact that this is an election season, he doesn't mind, you know, making this point. And you add out to that the fact that, of course, Israel is acting uh, with, still with, the cooperation of Russia and, and letting Russia know what they're doing in Syria. But maybe Putin is not exactly happy about the amount of uh, attacks that Israel is, uh, aerial attacks that uh, Israel is doing in, in Syria. So that could be a message in that regard as well. It's definitely not only on a legal level. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say I didn't buy the legal thing at all because I don't <laughs> consider Russia really a, a state of law. And so right. ev everything is politics. You know, if he wants to fix it, he fixes it. It's not as if right. his hands are tied because the judges, did, you know, did made their own independent decision. It's not that kind of country right. um, where the judiciary act independently. I, I think you made a crucial point, which is that this comes after is uh, that Russia and Putin have been acting this way towards a whole variety of international and foreign organizations, partly because there's a muscle memory that Jews have about mm -hmm. uh, Russia when it was the Soviet Union. Uh, the you know when I grew up, it was the era of refuseniks and Soviet Jewry. These mm -hmm. are words that were part of the diaspora Jewish vocabulary and that have more or less gone now. But there were this triggered. Uh, there was some twitching in the sort of phantom limb as people remembered Moscow cracking out down on Jewish life. Yep. There's a memory of that in the right? uh, 60s and 70s uh, and 80s. Uh, so I would sort of push it back gently against that because actually it was almost Dufka the opposite, that, uh, that the Jewish agency was able to continue slightly longer than some foreign agencies before they had that hand on the shoulder. Um, others got it sooner, uh, the Jewish agency, you know, being stopped now, but they had been able to function just a little bit longer than some other foreign organisations. So that's the first thing to say. And then the other one is interesting, which is, you know, it looked quite smart that good cop, bad cop routine you refer to, because Yair Lapid was only the foreign minister. And in a way, him having a go at Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is less potent than the head of government saying it. Well, the trouble is, what if the foreign minister becomes the head of government? And then everything he said is now looked at through a different light. It does, I think, support the view of some of us. And I think, you know, I was about to say both of us, but, you know, I don't want to speak for you. But on this podcast, I think we did say that it was a mistake for Israel to attempt to be neutral, to sit on the fence. This was a great moral moment and a decision, and Israel needed to go off the fence. And in a way, this whole thing has proved that that approach was right, because in the end, a dictator like Putin is not going to be mollified by, you know, some making nice. In the end, he's a bad guy, and he's going to, you know, What's that old story of the, you know, the scorpion will sting you as it's being carried over the stream mm -hmm. because he's a scorpion. That's what he's going to yeah. do. Uh, and so in some ways, the, you know, these this this was always in the post. And sure, you're, you're, you're going to have the people exactly saying, you know, this is proof that you can't appease an authoritarian. So why even try? The other side of the argument would be this is exactly what we were afraid of. We were afraid of, you know, provoking Putin to a point where he might, you know, this is what Israel at the end fears, close the doors and not let Jews out of Russia, right? So we should have been in this mode of being neutral and not in a way even trying to appease him. The, the argument continues in Israel. Of course, this has also become part of the political debate because this is the first test for the new prime minister, Yair Lapid, something that already Netanyahu has been attacking him for uh, running this, as Netanyahu says, as an amateur. But I'm sure that Putin has no intention of interfering in, an, in a, you know, an election in a country that isn't his own. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't attach that to him at all. I am shocked, <laughs> shocked that you might even suggest that Vladimir Putin would poke his knows and his cybersecurity agencies into the election <laughs> of a foreign country. Unimaginable. But you do take us nicely to what is happening on the other side of our long vacation, which is, of course, election season in the United States, but obviously in Israel. Um, so we want to know more about that. Give us our 
dose of election news that is going to have to t- t- tide us over through August. Okay, stop me when you want, because this can be long. No, I'm kidding. Okay, first of all, election season, Jonathan, started a month ago in Israel. There are still 95 days to go till election day. Universes can be created and demolished in the time that it takes Israel to go to the polls. Let's just compare it with the what? Remind me, about two months it will take Britain to elect a new prime minister to replace uh, Boris Johnson? Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that later. That's an internal contest. That's long. I mean, a British general election can be as short as a three-week campaign. Well, yeah, but you're a nation of... (laughs) You're a nation of 67 million. What do you guys know? We're 9 million and we like to take our time. We don't like to be rushed, even if it's the fifth election in in three years. So it's August. Not much is going to be happening uh, uh, this uh, month. Most of the country is away for summer uh, vacation. The Likud primaries are happening August 10th. Netanyahu wants a very moderate list this time. He's trying to woo the sort of soft right voters that ran away from the Likud to other parties like Bennett or uh, Gidon Saar. Um, So that is what he will try to do. The next important date on the calendar is September 15th, where the uh, lists close. So now we're in the season of mergers and uh, acquisitions. We are still at this point, looking at three options, Jonathan, one of them is that Netanyahu, I know this sounds familiar, echoes from the past, Netanyahu might reach the magic number of 61 and manage to form a coalition and become the prime minister. Another option, of course, is that he fails, like he has four times before, and somehow Benny Gantz manages, because he can theoretically ostensibly pull in the parts of the Haredim, he will manage to form a government. Third option, Israel goes to next elections, and Yair Lapid stays as prime minister. Are you confused yet? Would you no, like me to continue? I, I mean, it is such Groundhog Day, but just just talk about Benny Gantz for a second. Why why is it sure. that he has that option? Or he, there's a scenario that sees him become prime minister. Remember the co-founder of the uh, Blue and White Party with the current prime minister, Yair Lapid. What does he have that makes you put him in that second scenario rather than the current the incumbent, Yair Lapid? Uh, th- that's a very good question, obviously, because Lapid is... is the leader of the anti-Netanyahu block, but he he doesn't have it. Remember that episode, episode seven, Jonathan, Israeli math that we talked about. The how do you do special. That? I don't know how you do that? It's magic. It's magic. Um, it's that point where uh, it doesn't really matter how strong you are in mandates. It's true that in the polls, if Netanyahu has the thirty-four, the 50, 35 seats, and Lapid is right after him with the twenty-two or the twenty-three, Gantz is far behind in third place. But Gantz, again, remember, Israeli politics for the past two years in a deadlock. The BB camp and the anti-BB camp are pretty much aligned in the 60-60. So the player who has the most power is the player who can play on both fields. That is why Naftali Bennett became prime minister. He broke away from the BB block to head the anti-BB block. Gantz can do the same thing. He can break away because he can take parts of the anti-BB block, but maybe, potentially, break away parts of the ultra-Orthodox who have been sticking with Netanyahu for four elections. It's going to be hard for them to do it for another round. They need the budgets. They need the funding. It's not going to be easy for them. I, I'm, I'm very glad you talk, you've you led us to the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties. I think they're so interesting and are really well worth watching, partly for the reason you just said, which is that they exist to deliver for their constituents. They are ho-ho, practitioners of what in the American context would be called pork barrel politics. Now, of course, <laughs> no one is suggesting that there is any kind of barrel of pork for these parties. 
that would be a chasfachalile situation. So not there, not that. But the idea they live to deliver, it's not ideological. They have to deliver budgets for their constituents, meaning religious academies, schools, etc. And you can only do a certain amount of time in opposition before your constituents mm-hmm. start drumming their fingers on the table and saying, no, what have you got for us? And so mm. I think I'm with you. I think they won't do it another time, or they'll be very reluctant to do it another time. And maybe Bibi himself knows that. Uh, it is worth remembering as well, historically, they were very happy to serve in governments of the centre-left. They were there in Labour governments for many, many years in the founding decades of the state. They were there. And so in some ways, that that again goes to a question is, could they revert to type mm. and sit just as happily the, the way they would sit in the past under a Rabin or a Perez or, a, you know, going further back, Eshkol and all the others, do they, or has something changed in the Haredi world? And people talk about the Khadal phenomenon of people who are mm-hmm. simultaneously Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, but also, you know, merged with the Datilumi, the national religious camp. It, to me, that's a really interesting question. Are they these sort of, you know, almost ideologically neutral figures who are not so bothered by the size and borders of the state in terms of you know west bank and so on but more care more about religious life or have they become ideologically nationalist and mm-hmm. part of the electoral math that will be played out is it will test that question first of all they have moved much more to the right uh in recent years shas is considered to be really a more satellite party for the Likud. And you remember that the campaign used to be, if you vote for Shas, you're going to get Netanyahu as prime minister. That was even their slogan. So that is not, you know, that's going to be very hard to break away from the Netanyahu part. And I should also tell you that the United Torah Judaism are losing voters to Itamar Ben-Gvir's party. That's the, the phenomenon you talked about. They're becoming religious Zionists and more extreme to the right. So no, it's it's very hard to see them in a left side government for sure. But I think still there is a chance not for Shas, but for United Torah Judaism, yes, to break away and to join Gantz. For them, Gantz, remember, is center and even center right now that he joined forces with Gidon Sal, so that's okay for them. And as I say, they can't spend too much time in opposition. They're going to need some sort of respite from that. Yeah, really yes, yes. No, I should be clearer. I didn't think they would sit happily in a left government um, because mm-hmm. that's, I agree, that must have sounded like I was saying that. It was more that they would find someone like Gantz acceptable, mm-hmm. um, yes. partly because of those you know, the, the traditional pragmatism, um, mm-hmm. but they have absolutely become part of the hawkish world. It is now a distant memory when, you know, Yosef Borg sat alongside Ben-Gurion in the National Religious Party, etc. It's mm-hmm. a different entity now for all the reasons you've said, um, but I think the Haredim are worth watching and maybe it'd be fascinating to know Benny Gantz is, have a little peek at his schedule, uh, his, you know, diary. Is he having little, you know, discreet meetings with them where certainly no pork barrel is on the menu. Um, Talking of politics. Yes, there is an election season upon us in another country, I believe. There there is, but the electorate is smaller. Despite the size of this country, the electorate is way smaller than the number of voters who will be casting ballots in Israel because only just north of 100,000 people, maybe it goes up to 160,000, there are no precise numbers, will choose Britain's next Prime Minister, because an election is on here inside the Conservative Party, to choose a new leader. Um, It comes down to a a choice between the, until very recently, Finance Minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, or um, Liz Truss, who is the current Foreign Secretary. One of the two will be 
Prime Minister. Uh, lots of people have been noticing the, in some ways, political irony that it's Britain's Conservative Party, centre-right party or right-wing party, that will is about to elect either Britain's first Prime Minister of colour in Rishi Sunak, British Indian background, or its third woman Prime Minister in Liz Truss. If this is indeed voter body of 100,000 people, right? But the the debates are on a national stage. Is this because they are not really well known? They are going to be the next prime minister. And so this has to happen really in front of the whole British public. Absolutely. It's only an internal party election. But that is such a democratic outrage that they're aware that people think it's an outrage for the third time in, uh, you know, six years, the Conservative Party is electing yet again a new prime minister, that to soften that and to and to make that look a little less illegitimate, they are at least parading them on TV. And also it's, it's partly to help Conservative Party members make their mind up because they want to pick somebody who they think could perform well in a head-to-head in a debate with the election. Labour leader, Keir Starmer. Mm-hmm. And so that's partly what this is all about. It's like a sort of TV audition. So I just, I I mean, um, that was all lead up to ask, um, what do they think about us? (laughs) Yeah, this is the, is it good for the Jews question? The, is it good for the Israel question? I think it's fair to say that pro-Israel people in the Conservative Party are probably would give the edge to Liz Truss uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of this question. By the way, of course, it totally doesn't matter, right? The the question of their support or not for Israel is definitely not an issue in this campaign. But it's, so you know... You, don't, you we, don't have to insult us, man. I mean, it's okay. It's, it's like, just not what the election is going to be about. Um, but within that, uh, they, the preference, I think, would probably be among pro-Israel folk for Liz Truss because she has been foreign secretary. She's been she's seen as having been a very good friend of Israel there, was very keen to broker a trade agreement with Israel when she did the job of international trade when Britain was uh, still is, but trying frantically to get new trade agreements after leaving the European Union. So I think she's seen as being um hawkish and, you know, reliable friend of Israel. There's some enthusiasm there. Rishi Sunak, much more of an unknown quantity, just because his jobs that he's done have not really touched on foreign affairs or foreign policy much at all. He was mainly concerned with finance. And I noticed uh, one reporter went through all his tweets and could o- over years and could only see the word Israel mentioned once. Whereas Liz Truss has had, you know, the platform to do more things. So, for example, was you know, on board with um, proscribing Hamas, even its political wing, uh, as a terrorist organisation and so on. So, you know, there are signs there. The truth is they're both really pro-Israel and probably a trust has had more opportunity to show her pro-Israel credentials and therefore has a bit more enthusiasm among those conservative voters who, for whom this is a big issue. So to our guest, we have talked a lot on this podcast, but all the way through um, the year about Israel's government, the now outgoing government, this coalition of many, many diverse parties from left and right, Jewish and Arab. And it's, you know, caused great interest around the world. It's fascinating. It is now uh, at the end of its immediate uh, political life. But what better time than to talk to somebody who absolutely knows the story of this from the inside and from the very highest level. So, Yoni, you should introduce our guest. 
Shimrit Meir was Naftali Bennett's closest advisor. Her official title was Senior Foreign Policy Advisor, and she was dubbed the most powerful woman in Israel during his brief tenure in office. Her thinking shaped Israel's policy towards the U.S., Russia, Ukraine, Iran, the world at large. She was also in charge of painting Naftali Bennett as a centrist figure, and her leaving his side in May of 2022 is widely seen as the beginning of the end of his tenure in office. So <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Shimrit, we're very happy uh, to talk to you on Unholy today. Very happy to be here. I'm an avid listener. <laughs> and we're, we're, glad, we're glad to know that. You know, we should probably uh, begin by saying that uh, a month ago you gave an interview to Yediot uh, Achonot, an Israeli paper, which created a bit of a ruckus here, and it was read as this critique of the Bennett-Lapid coalition shortly after it collapsed. What are your thoughts, like, in the months since, and, and did you expect the criticism that, that you received since, that you faced since? Um, I definitely did not expect the magnitude of reactions. I think the timing was a little bit off. Um, right after the collapse of the government, when people's feelings were very, very raw, and they just did not want to listen. Sometimes you just need time to grieve, and I think that I kind of ignored it, rushing to quickly maybe just, you know, set the narrative and draw a conclusion. But I think the urgency um, was because I do feel that the situation is very, very urgent. We are heading towards another election. I think that there are many lessons to be learned from um, this magnificent yet failed political experiment. Um, I think that it will be very beneficial for us to try and digest and learn them as quickly as possible. Um, I think that was the sense of urgency, first of all, to tell the story as it is, because it was and is and will be told in a very distorted manner. And B, to maybe, I think, you know, if I'm being completely honest with myself, I have a great deal of frustration. I don't think that this should have necessarily ended this way. Um, I was hoping and dreaming for something else. I hope this would be the beginning, not a short-lived experiment, but as a, a beginning of a new political movement uh, led by Bennett. Um, I think just for many, that was a, a great deal of frustration. And I want to tell the story. And I think that we should, even people with, with a pushback, should maybe reread it now and try and listen. So I love your description of it as a magnificent but failed experiment. I mean, people outside Israel certainly were wishing it well. They wanted it to do well, Jews outside Israel, but also, I think, you know, governments outside. The idea of, in this age of polarization, different parties coming together seemed like a very encouraging idea. So what went wrong? Well, first of all, before the what went wrong part, which was, I think, maybe the part that was kind of missing uh, right in the aftermath, um, maybe we should dedicate some time to what went right, because there has been a good year, at least a chunk of it, a big chunk of it, in my opinion, was very good, difficult, challenging, very hard to manage, but good. 
So before it went downhill, several good things happened. First of all, as you said, we demonstrated that things can be done differently, that we can challenge polarization and tribal voting in a society and a political culture and demography that is highly tribal. That is, um, you know, you vote according to where you were born and how you were raised, which I think is an insult to free thinking and to modern politics and to possibilities. So I think that after two years of political limbo, this brave move by frankly one man who was the, um, used to be the prime minister then, almost reshaped Israel politics. So, so, and I think that he managed very quickly in very challenging circumstances, i.e. with very little political power, with only six seats in the parliament, um, with an impossible coalition, impossible coalition to manage. Eight parties, Jews, Arabs, left, right, um, many difficult personalities with very, with, let's say, not enough legitimacy in public opinion, with big challenges in terms of national security. And he is relatively very young. Yet I think he managed to quickly adjust to his new role and to form a policy that is, in my opinion, intriguing. Because he said the following, he said, let's see our, our shortcomings or our challenges as opportunities. For example, we cannot talk ideology and we cannot take bold ideological move because this is not the kind of coalition or government that will allow it. Um, we cannot annex the territories, we cannot um, agree to a Palestinian state. We cannot change the nature um, of the Jewish democracy. We cannot do this sort of things. What can we do? We can work. We can get things moving. We can uh, wake up the systems after two long years of political limbo and stagnation. We can, you know, we can do hard things. Um, so I think that was one piece of his policy. But I think the most important piece of legacy is his tone and language in us in such a heated debate society. Suddenly a prime minister that seeks common ground and doesn't look to exclude, that doesn't point out enemies, that doesn't do the we versus them, on the contrary. And I think that really resonated. This was a key piece in his legacy. So that was the first part, the good part. But then there was another part. So let's focus a little on that, which was part of, of what Jonathan was saying. What went wrong here? Was it the opposition that wouldn't give uh, you know him a day of peace? Was it the fact that we hit a terror wave and then the whole cooperation with uh, Ram, the uh, Arab list, became an issue what happened here? Why didn't it, at the end of the day, hold on more than a year? Well, there is never, you need one explanation to one piece of history. I think it was a long decline. Um, I think the political management of such a diverse, crazy coalition, really, from the Muslim Brotherhood to Yesha Council, was almost impossible to manage. 
that was dead. There was the constant attacks by the opposition that was that were unusual in their intensity, delegitimization of the government, of him personally. That was very hard, especially on the more right elements of the government. But the way I experienced it, I think things were doomed once the Israeli-Palestinian conflict woke up. That was during Ramadan, with the beginning of the terror wave, which was brutal, with, I don't know if you managed to um, repress it by now, you need, but, you know, 20 Israelis killed, axes in the streets, Tel Aviv. It was an intense one. When the wound is becoming, you know, prominent again, when it's, when the zero-sum game, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, presents itself, then you know, you cannot sustain a coalition or a government that is dependent on Palestinians, MK. So I think that was the beginning of the end. And I, it was clear to me that this is, this is about to end soon. The question is, how long will the dying process take and who's going to break it from which side, the left or the right? Uh, but I, I felt we were doomed. Well, that, that point about the particular tension of having an, an Arab party in the coalition at a time of where there are terror attacks. I, I'd like to hear more about that because the thing that did capture the imagination of people outside the country was particularly this, a Jewish-Arab government, a coalition that included parties of both national communities. This seemed something completely new. Just take us into the room. When the Prime Minister was dealing with Mansour Abbas um, of the Islamist Party, how was that dynamic different compared to the other coalition partners? How did they talk to each other? Because that was the novel feature of this government. And I think, as I say, I think that's what caught people's eye around the world. And I think people would want to know more about that. Well, first of all, I have just to say, for the record, the problem was never Mansour Abbas. Mansour is, in my opinion, the most important, maybe intriguing, interesting Israeli political figure. Up until now, we, I, I think it's it's early to, to say that he is a, an historic figure. It's too early to, to say, but he definitely has the potential of becoming one. Um, Mansour is, is, um, is a very unique, interesting, amazing person. The problem is that Mansour was not alone, just uh, the same way that the glove did not fit the hand in terms of Bennett's party and his changed political identity. The same thing happened with Mansour and his folks. The thing is, we are still living in a bloody conflict. It is still there. Sometimes we are able to put it asleep for a longer while. But when, for example, there are riots in Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Arab MK just can't take the hit from their, their constituencies. It just, there is very little that they can do. They have, they cannot be in a government that enters Al-Aqsa Mosque and violates the holiness of Al-Aqsa. They just can't. And, and do I get the feeling from what you're saying that he, Mansour Abbas, could, but his fellow MKs in Ram could not? No, it was very difficult for him too. Um, but it, and, and it's very hard to accommodate. That's what I'm saying. And I think the pendulum, the problem is that just a year before or less than a year before, 
a month before forming this government, we were in a conflict in Gaza that ended up being a conflict inside Israel in the, the most horrendous presentation of Jewish and Arabs' conflict inside Israel. So going from there, from that same sense of resentment and hatred to a government that is dependent on its survival on, on Palestinians, MK, this was too much. This was way too much. And the fact that he actually, I think, maybe, you know, if you want to look a bit differently, it's almost a miracle that it sustained for as long as it did. And I think that the fact that um, we, we established, or the prime minister were able to establish a long-standing ceasefire in Gaza, using many sticks and carrots, uh, and, you know, it was, wasn't easy. And generally keeping for a year things intact, that allowed a year or almost a year of normalcy. You, you know, I, I know that you yourself, you spoke of a sense of urgency and you're, you're very concerned with the legacy, with what the lessons are of this uh, uh, government and the fact that we are now in the fifth election cycle in three years. What are we to learn from the experiment and from the failure? Is it that it isn't possible to have an Arab party in the government? Is that it isn't possible to take the left and the right together and try to make something that looks more like Israeli unity? I mean, these are sad conclusions. I'm just wondering if these are the conclusions that we should arrive at. Um, I would say two things. Um, I would say that the center must hold. We must redefine and find our political center. At the moment, there is a gap. There should be a big political player that can cooperate with anyone and not exclude anyone, including the usual suspects that are usually excluded. And I think that the quest, our quest should be of detaching identity-based voting from how we shape our political landscape. That's one, and I think it sounds vague and it sounds big, but this was the plan all along. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that I do think that we cannot afford with our huge national security challenges to have this kind of political dysfunction for uh, much longer. We need after this election to form a government, whatever the price is, and we need a stable government. And I have to say, I'm even less interested in the identity of the government. Of course, I am interested in the end. I'm very worried about how things are going to look, and I'm not happy with the options. Having said that, we cannot have a situation with if you are considering our enemies, considering the point in time, we just cannot afford this political insanity for longer. Um, Does that mean that you think it would be more better for Israel to have a stable government under Netanyahu than a composite coalition under Lapid? No, I did not say that. I just think that um, a sixth election should not be an option. Mm. I think this is very unfortunate. This is very irresponsible and immature for all of us that we got to the point that we cannot sustain a government for more than a year. Um, I think our enemies are looking, I think our allies are looking, and I saw 
firsthand how your counterparts in the world arena and in the region look at you when they think that you are safe on your seat and when they think you're not. I think that we are facing just these days, if you look at the situation up north, of course, the advanced Iranian nuclear problem, the world's recession, huge, and of course, the internal situation. We face huge challenges and we need to have someone in charge. I want to ask something more about, and you talked about how Bennett you know, carry this message of unity. And to people maybe not completely familiar with Israel's political history, this is not something to be taken for granted. We should say, and I kind of want to take you to help us take behind the scenes of of this transformation, because Bennett himself was, of course, the head of the settler movement. Let's say a bit of an impulsive right-wing leader who would always attack Netanyahu from the right. He would attack the Supreme Court and the left and the leftist, and he went through something that seemed very quick, a transformation into this centrist figure and to this unity, you know, this person carrying this message of unity. Was it, in your uh, opinion, as maybe one of the architects or the architects of this transformation, an authentic change? Is he completely, you know, on board with that? Oh, for sure. For sure. First of all, something happens to you once you, you know, go through your 40s. Um, and approaching your 50th year. Apparently, I'm not there yet, fortunately. Um, <laughs> Jonathan, you want to tell us something about that? Yeah, let me, re- let me, give, <laughs> let me report back on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there is that, and also he is the son of American immigrants, so he has this why can't we all get along thing in note inside of him. And he is really genuinely a very kind, good-hearted person, open to new ideas and to people. And also, I think, because he's the son of American immigrants, he's not part of any particular Israeli tribe. He's not so much of an Ashkenazi, he's not Sephardic, he's not here, neither there, he's not, he's religious, but then he's not very religious. So I think he was the man for the mission in terms of his biography, but also in terms of his state of mind, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, one, uh, maybe in, in the first month, I, I, I mentioned offhand, you know, that I'm the first woman in my position. He said, hmm, I did not think of it. So there was some kind of color blindness um, mm-hmm. uh, and gender blindness about him that was very refreshing and it's, it's a rarity, especially in Israel. So I think that was that. Um, and in terms of the transformation, I think that what changed him, but I think this is more for him to say, is that when he understood the magnitude of the hatred and that our entire political discourse is poisonous uh, and it is toxic and it is violent to to, to an extent. And I think that the days going, you know, to his decision to form the government when he was uh, still going back and forth, the wave of hatred and of intimidation that he faced almost convinced him that this is what he has to do. So, yeah, I think this was definitely an authentic transformation. What I find almost heartbreaking is that um, it did not pay off politically, eventually. You know, it's too soon to tell. He's a young politician still, but this was not what I've imagined nor planned. He should have been 
the carrier of the message, the message of unity, the message of central, pragmatic, inclusive kind of Israel. We, we want to get on in a moment to some of the issues, the substantive issues that confronted you. Um, and Russia is obviously massively in the news. Just before we leave, though, the circumstance of the government, you've explained for us very persuasively about why the government came unstuck. But you yourself left, um, I think, a full month before the whole thing was over. Mm-hmm. Can you just, what light can you shed on that decision, why you got out before the thing itself was concluded? It's kind of weird to talk about this now, even though it's been dealt with in the media as if, I don't know. There was a great deal of office politics that was becoming a little bit bullish for my taste. I thought that the dynamic between us, which was very close and still is, I always felt very hurt. I thought that this was the time giving the visible collapse for a bold move. I hated this slow decline and I hated the fact that political extortion became the new normal. I just did not think this is a good plan. I thought we were losing legitimacy in the public opinion by the hour. I think the government will be forever marked as being extorted by the Arab parties. I thought that we should have just said, just no, not blackmail and not this and not that. If you want to be part of this patriotic as I said, magnificent political experiment that is very important for both Jews and Arabs and everyone in this country, be my guest. If not, I cannot accommodate your ridiculous demands on an hourly basis. And I thought that, unfortunately, elections are imminent and we should internalize it, process the grief and move forward. And he chose another path of, and he did this out of, sense of responsibility. He thought that maybe we can, you know, do this and that and it will hold. So it became complicated and I just, it was a very intense year. I needed uh, I needed to spend some time at home, I guess. So I'm taking you back a little bit in time to basically the decision uh, once Russia invades Ukraine. For Israel to find this middle ground and to not be vocally anti-Russian, to not join the sanctions, to not help Ukraine with weapons and and such, there were many outside and inside Israel that thought that Israel should be more clearly taking a stand against Russia. What exactly was Bennett's and yours biggest fear if Putin was provoked in a way? Um, Well, first of all, I would say Israel is not a usual country. We are not like, and I know everyone can claim it because everyone has the agenda, but but nonetheless, I I want to stress this because Putin is our neighbor from the Northeast. They're right there. Um, We have an urgent mission. In Syria, you're referring to Syria. I'm referring to Syria and I'm referring to the the Iranian presence in Syria, which is an ongoing day in, day out kind of battleground for us. And we need to be able to operate there period. Otherwise, we will have another Hezbollah um, in a matter of a couple of years. It's just not optional for us. So we need to maintain freedom of action there, period. That's A. Um, And the Russian army is very present. And another consideration which we see now coming into reality is the fact that there are 
two huge Jewish communities in Russia and in Ukraine. And we cannot afford, and we have as the homeland of the Jews, um, a responsibility to make sure that on top of brutal war and huge economic sanctions on in Russia, they won't suffer anti-Semitism as well. And most importantly, they, they should be able to immigrate to Israel or to make Aliyah to Israel if they so choose. We have to keep the borders open. We have to have this flexibility in both Russia and in Ukraine. This was a classic situation of between a rock and a hard place because we did identify with Ukraine. We supported the UN resolution. We helped humanitarianly. Enormously, we built a field hospital. Uh, we absorbed immigrants from the war. Um, but there were several things that we cannot do. We couldn't have done. And that was one track. And Bennett, being the real politic kind of pragmatist that he is, will say to you bluntly, I will always, always favor the well-being and the security and the survival of the Jewish state over any other value. Okay. That was that. But then he was asked to try and mediate between the two parties. This was not his idea. He was presented with, his, with this idea. Given his good relations back then with Putin, the timing felt right. Why? Because this was the point in time when the West's overwhelming, paralyzing retaliation was kind of rattling the Russian side. But this was not the main consideration. I think generally Israelis are, we are not theoretical about war. We understand, we can smell it, we can feel it. And when you see this kind of, of course, the consequences, the energy markets and the food shortage and everything that's going on in the world, you yeah, he had a moral obligation and he pursued it and it was okay for a while until it wasn't, then he withdrew. This action now with the Moscow uh, taking action against the Jewish agency, some people have read that as being very directed at the now Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, because in the dynamic between him and Naftali Bennett, there was a kind of good cop, bad cop yes, thing going definitely. on. Where, Which was fully right, coordinated, well, you tell us how right? deliberate that is, yeah. and then it's interesting you've affirmed that. And then and then just to what extent you think this is now payback from Putin to Lapid for having been the bad cop and having said some tough things to Russia. Is he? Did he sort of wait till the Lapid was in that chair and think, right, now I'm going to take action on something you value, namely the Jewish agency? So uh, I would say, first of all, this goes to maybe, you know, this maybe corresponds with the, with the first half of our conversation about um, this coalition is really not um, coherent in terms of ideology. Lapid and Bennett are not the same person politically. They have mm-hmm. nuanced, maybe, but sometimes not so nuanced, different values. And, um, you know, Bennett back then, when he was asked why he's not rep himself in the Ukrainian flag, he said, I only rep myself in the Israeli flag. And I think that there were many in Israel, Lapid included, that thought that we should make, be on a good side of history and, and make the right moral vote that was okay and I think it's valid. I think that a good moment is that when we were able to utilize the complexity of this government as a toolkit 
So we had a good cop and a bad cop and we could maneuver because we had to operate in Syria and we had to allow Jews in. I hope they will figure out this uh, Jewish agency crisis because this is not uh, looking good. Do you think that Lapid's saying, coming like very outwardly out and saying, if this happens, this will create damage for our relationship between Israel and Russia. Was that the right thing to do? I mean, are they acting sensibly right now, seeing it from um, the outside? I think, you know, he is the prime minister. He's entitled to have his own policy. He's entitled to be more upfront or more hawkish or more pro-Ukrainian. And that's okay. Um, I do feel that in the last couple of days, there are some attempt to solve it in a more diplomatic, quiet way, um, has to do with the Russians as well. And hopefully they will be responsible because, because we don't want to get to blame the Jew kind of mentality neither in Russia nor in Ukraine that would be extremely dangerous. And we do have a real sense of responsibility for these communities. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the relationship with the United States. Um, it was very clear from the outside that, uh, it seemed anyway, that Washington was doing its very best to make life comfortable for this government because it, there was no love lost between Joe Biden and Netanyahu. And so he wanted to make sure that there were no difficulties, at least coming from the Americans. You know, there's a bit of a smile there, which makes me think that's your view of it no, too. No, that's and not... That they that's, were trying to keep disagreements. But will you tell me? No, 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 no. Uh, that, that's, you know, the great sense of frustration is that you work so hard at something and then everyone describes it as obvious. Um, <laughs> this was not like that right from the beginning. Um, of course, they like the idea of this government. What's not to like it, if, especially if you are a liberal Democrat in the West. Um, and we made our best, as I said, to use it for the benefit of Israel's image, which was suffering for many years. And they were um, lovely people to deal with, especially in the White House. And I think very quickly we formed a very intimate relationship and we decided that even if there are disagreements, we are handling them in-house, between us, quietly. But I just want to remind everyone that they were very keen on opening the consulate in Jerusalem and it took a lot of persuasion and patience. The yeah. American consulate for American consulate for the Palestinians, yeah. And that we had two pretty significant settlement building programs that they definitely did not like and it was very painful process. We did not disagree on Iran on everything, um, although we had a breakthrough there with the very, very welcome decision by the president to not remove the RGC from the foreign terrorist list. But there were many. This was not Bennett and Biden are not from the same political hub. They are different. They are different in many things. Um, so it took a lot of work, but yes, they were, I think what maybe was our challenge was that we wanted after four years of uh, Trump Netanyahu bromance that really resonated in Israeli public opinion and also in the region. It projected, uh, you know, you can say what, you, but it does project power. The friendship with the United States is, um, is a key asset for Israel's national security. 
we wanted for this intimate friendship that everyone is paying attention to, it is very visible and there is no public daylight. We, we really wanted for it to happen, but in the Biden-Bennett version, which is completely different in style. And I think to a very large extent, we succeeded. We did not agree on everything, but I think it does look good. Just where, where, where I was going to go with that was this, as you said, they, Bennett and Biden are from different uh, you know, political uh, places. And, and particularly where you know, Biden would be coming from is two-state solution and territorial compromise and so on. But it takes me back to the question about the people sitting around together in the coalition. Obviously, there couldn't be those big moves. But I'm just, again, curious about whether that meant that that question, in some ways the existential question about the relationship with the Palestinians, whether that was just not even discussed for the year inside the coalition. Would, for example, Mansour Abbas not even raise it, the question of you know, you mentioned settlement building and so on. Was it just sort of almost like a taboo that is off limits for this government because we're not going to go there? Um, well, I I have to say in the good months, this was not a topic of discussions. Everyone just agreed that this is not going to be the year where we're going to solve the unsolvable conflict and uh, everyone should just move on with, our li- with their lives. And also, we did not do nothing. We were very active in um, improving daily lives for Palestinians, both in the West Bank, but especially in Gaza, which was a game changer. So I, I think in the good months when everyone was in the idyllic or, you know, the honeymoon part of this coalition, everyone was very careful not to raise the big issues. When things got a little bit, you know, people got used to the fact that this is now the political reality, uh, got too comfortable in their seats, they started challenging and, you know, correspond with their constituencies more and raising controversial subjects, whether it's from the right or from the left. This was, I have to say, very tedious, very, very tedious, because, and, and I think very short-sighted, because you're not going to get your prize, or, you know, whatever your political ambition regarding the conflict, but you are going to destroy a very, very important political moment. And I have to say that this is not about the government. The stagnation and the going nowhereness of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has to do, first and foremost, with the nature of the Palestinian national movement. Um, in my opinion, at least, of course, we are a key player too, but the I don't know if you want to talk now about the Palestinian political movement. Yonit knows I have many opinions about uh, about it. Um, but I've, basically, I've a solution is not, is not uh, feasible any anytime soon. So why, why use it as a political tool? You know, we've touched on this um, when you talked about the moment we are in time and how urgent and how, you know, the, the security issues and the security challenges uh, Israel has. Obviously, the biggest security challenges, Iran. How concerned are you what is going to happen uh, uh, vis-a-vis the Iranian nuclear plan? I'm very concerned. In terms of the Iranian enrichment program and huge, huge leap that they took um, after the withdrawal, the American withdrawal from the JCPOA back in 2018, this is the situation we inherited. And I have to say that Bennett, when he came to office, the first thing that he did, I think it was the, the second day or the third day, 
in order to conduct a, a thorough policy review. He said we need to make up our mind in, about going back to the JCPOA. Back then, there was a sense of urgency. Um, but I don't want to just say things. I want to really evaluate where we are. And I have to say that um, his position was not automated. He not just said we are against because we are against. We calculated um, whether between two awful options, the options are both bad. And I think both us and the Americans agree on that. There are no good options given the advanced phase of the enrichment uh, at the moment. So the, the baseline is that both So you're saying options, no deal and a deal, both, both pretty horrible options. Yes. So if you are going back to the JCPOA, maybe you put a Band-Aid on the enrichment, which is very valuable. However, you lift the sanction and you allow billions and billions of dollars to the hands of the Ayatollahs and of the IRGC and of Kutzfors, and this is next door to you. This is mm-hmm. right outside your door. And this will uh, trigger many little conflict for Israel, will consume our attention, and will make our lives living hell. So that's one bad option. But again, we are buying sometimes on the enrichment fraud. The second option is not to sign, take the risk of um, a breakout, or take a risk when they start enriching to 90% or accumulate enough material and keep the sanctions intact. But we thought that um, a third option might be a good idea, which is just to deter Iran from taking the crucial steps. I have to say that one of the reasons why I think it is so urgent for Israel to form a functioning, long-lasting government, hopefully unity one, is because we will have to deal with that one way or another. When you said deter, did you mean deter militarily? Not necessarily. You can deter with snapback, you can deter with more sanctions, you can deter with maybe um, a reliable military threat, but not necessarily. We did not advocate war, never. I think that our policy was more nuanced, first of all, given the changed circumstances, but the change in style of this government. We did not confront the president, for example, politically, openly, we did not do that. I think it was very elegant in that sense. However, we did voice our opinion. And I think that we made an impact. They did hear us. You mentioned before that the prime minister who you served is a young politician. You're young too. Do you think he will come back? And do you think you'll come back to politics in the centre of Israeli government? I think that he will come back for sure. I, and I'm not saying this out of knowledge. Um, I think that he will come back one time or another for sure. I hope sooner rather than later. He has a lot to offer. And I do feel that it, you know, maybe you need to take, let people time to miss you a little bit. Um, but that's just a, just a guesstimation. I'm not saying this based on knowledge. Um, I was very keen on him back then running in this election. Um, but yeah, circumstances. Um, as for me, I, I have no idea. 
I, <laughs> I'm taking a long, you know, way overdue vacation. I'm spending some time. I have, I actually am reading a book. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very thrilling. Shimwait, <laughs> um, we know that um, we know up close that this year has been quite a roller coaster uh, for you, and we really thank you for kind of taking us behind the scenes and giving us the ups and the downs of this government of this what you call this uh, magnificent experiment. And we really, really thank you for for this conversation. It was thank um, you, always a pleasure. Very interesting. Thank you thank so you, much. Bye bye. Well, that was um, riveting, I think, to hear directly from the inside and somebody who was absolutely at the very top. You could tell how uh, close politically she was to Naftali Bennett and to hear that account from the inside of what she very memorably called a magnificent but failed experiment. Yeah, and and she talked about, you know, her heartbreak. And you can hear in her voice that it's still that kind of feeling. She talks about grieving. She talks about how this could have solved uh, ameliorated some of Israel's terrible political uh, problems. And, and and she says this, right, the sense of urgency of saying this now because Israel is embroiled in its fifth election and what does that mean and how dangerous it is uh, and what she was trying to do, what he was trying to do. I think it was a, a really, really um, extraordinary um, behind-the-scenes look at at what they were trying to do, not only on the political national level, but also on the international level, I think. Uh, we heard uh, a, a lot of interesting, um, you know, a, lot, a very interesting account from her. Yeah, and very clear that she doesn't, you know, this is not over as far as she's concerned. This effort at breaking through the deadlock, at breaking Israel's polarization, uh, is a project you f- feel that she and her former boss want to uh, revive at some point, um, but she's obviously going to take a break now. But yeah, I felt as if this is a, a story whose ending has not yet been completely written. Indeed, still an ongoing story, so much so that we should note that a few hours after our interview with Shamrit Meir, a news item was published on the Arts uh, website claiming that the director of the Mossad, David Barnea, suspected Meir had leaked information about a Mossad operation while working in the prime minister's office. Barnea himself, former prime minister Benton, and Meir all denied this claim. We have some prizes to hand out. Uh, uh, chutzpah and mensch. I w- I'm very keen to go first with the chutzpah award uh, because this no one. No one's going to stop you, Jonathan. You this first. one. This one brought delight, partly for those of us who are purists on the word chutzpah and f- believe it's a very specific kind of outrageous cheek. Um, it isn't just you know. I've often said this, but I see you know British newspapers referring to it as if it just means sort of panache or brio or something. It doesn't. It's it's a particular direct you know, extravagant hypocrisy. Um, and that's why this week's winner, I, I, I think he, you know, bars all rival, is a member of United States Congress, Glenn Thompson, a Pennsylvania Republican, who uh, voted against a bill that would codify the right to have same-sex marriage into federal law. You think, okay, what's wrong with that? That's where Republicans stand on that issue. Except just a few days Afterwards, having made that vote, I think three days afterwards, he attended his son's same-sex wedding and delivered a very nice speech welcoming his son-in-law 
uh, into his family, saying this was like having a new son in the family. And his uh, spokesperson put out a statement saying they were thrilled to attend and celebrate, he and his wife, their son's marriage on Friday night as he began this new chapter in his life. In other words, it's fine for me, but everybody else has to be denied this right. It can't be <laughs> This is privately his private life, and that's his public life. life. I don't see that. No, this is really the textbook definition of chutzpah. I mean, completely. So this is an amazing. I know why you held on to this story, uh, gleefully. Um, <laughs> I think if you have an updated edition of Leo Roston's The Joys of Yiddish, <laughs> and you go in the index and look up C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, turn to the page, and by some miracle of time travel, However old your edition is, the name of Representative Glenn Thompson will appear under the definition of chutzpah. Uh, votes against it in law, but meanwhile, uh, absolutely all on board within his own family. Amazing. Okay, Mensch, Mensch, please. Um, is uh, we're, we're gonna we, the Chinese version of Mensch is I think. This is me trying to be Chinese. This is very strange. Shang Reng. I don't know. Mm. I hope all our uh, Chinese uh, listeners or Chinese-speaking listeners will call in if I said it wrong. But that is the word I'm using because we are choosing Shen Dong, who is a man from uh, eastern China. And he's gone viral this week. I'm sure you've seen it as well, Jonathan. Uh, CCTV footage basically showing him catching a toddler. Uh, her name is Xin Xin, and she fell out of the sixth floor apartment window, and he managed to catch her and save uh, her life. He really became a hero, obviously. Uh, the girl is, by the way, he's, she's been admitted to the local hospital. They discharge her after a standard checkup. Again, a girl who managed to climb out of her window, fall six stories down, and was saved by the 31-year-old bank a worker, I think he deserves the Mensch Award Total. this week. I really totally do. happy for him to win it. I like how globally we are now ranging with our Mensch Awards. <laughs> but I've got to know this: Did he? How did he know to be there? I mean, ah, uh, that's a good. No, he wasn't. I mean, he was sort of walking there. I think he was on his phone, and then luckily she was kind of. I'm sensing you didn't see this video. This is pretty remarkable. I'm going to send it to you in a minute. But she kind of got stuck somewhere in the second floor because there was this sort of advertisement. So she hung up onto there, and then he kind of managed to catch her. So that's the whole world was seeing it, but Jonathan was busy doing something else. So that is what happened in this in this video. It's pretty we, remarkable. We will have a link to that. Act. <laughs> I, you know, the truth is, I had read about it, but I haven't yet seen it. Um, it's a wondrous moment. Um, so yes, a worthy. I think worthy winners, plural of chutzpah and mensch, both um, with little competition. But we want to do one of our little honourable mention um, because much loved guest on uh, the podcast, Maim Bialik. Um, got some rather nice news this week, which is that she has been confirmed full-time as the host of TV's Jeopardy quiz, which, as you know, I watch little else on American TV. Um, but she is there, and this is a sort of totemic position in America's national life, a much-loved uh, predecessor for that role. But Mayim Bialik, I think she's going to be sharing it with another uh, guy, but uh, Mayim Bialik, as a former guest on Unholy, uh, we are glad to see her career go from strength to strength. Remember uh, that it does do wonders for you if you do come on this show. We've, <laughs> we've got a pretty good track record of people who've been on the show and done very, very well. Some of them have done well even before they came here. Um, <laughs> you but, think? Uh, we, no, yeah, I think David Remick didn't need right. the boost of coming on Unholy, but, you know, he's not looked back since. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> 
I agree. And I urge our listeners to go back to that conversation, first of all, with David Remnick, but also with Mayim Bialik, who finally uh, settled the age-old question for us, which one of us is a geek and which is a nerd. And I think the answers might totally not surprise you. Uh, In any case, (laughs) we, we are reaching... The end of our uh, what is it season two finale, Jonathan? Yeah, because we're we taking have on a huge break. cliffhanger. We need some um, suspense cliffhanger. Will so Jonathan survive back. his vacation? I don't know because he goes wild on vacations. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we hope he'll be back. Don't do anything crazy, Jonathan. I will, although, uh, continue to uh, write you twenty-five messages a week, and uh, we shall say our thank yous to our wonderful, wonderful team: Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat, Romatic, and Irad Eshel. We will nag all of them back uh, come September 1st. And Jonathan, thank you. It's been quite a ride. We'll be, we'll be back. See you then. Have a good break. You too. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.